Welcome to the 273rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome David Wallace-Wells, journalist and author of The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time and many Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Korea Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, May 6th, 2021, there are 3,244,926 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Death toll in the United States from COVID-19 is now 579,382. In Malaysia, 1,591 have died from COVID-19. In Nepal, 3,475 have died from the virus. India is today reporting 230,168 deaths from COVID-19. That's up from 226,169 yesterday, staggering day-to-day totals from India. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Helen Etuck, planned to be a pediatrician, dies at 20. This was written by Catherine Q. Seeley and published in the Those We've Lost section of the New York Times on February 10th, 2021. Helen Etuck dreamed of becoming a pediatrician, a senior in college. She loved children and planned to dedicate herself to giving them healthy lives. And because she was raised by a single mother, she was determined that once she became a doctor, she would take care of children, even if their mothers couldn't afford to pay. But Ms. Etuck never got that far. She died of complications of the coronavirus on January 12th at a hospital in Arlington, Texas, where her family lives, her mother Ellen Clinton said at a phone interview. Ms. Clinton said her daughter had also had lupus, a chronic disease of the immune system, and had been experiencing pain in her joints. She was 20. Ms. Etuck was studying at the University of North Texas in Denton and going to in-person classes. Her mother said that even though Miss Etuck had worn a mask and had tried to maintain distance from other people, she developed a bad cough that turned out to be a symptom of COVID-19. She blamed herself, saying she made a mistake in going back to school, Ms. Clinton said. She said that sometimes students pull their masks down so they cover their mouths but not their noses. Her daughter was hospitalized for almost three months before she died. Helen Otabong Etuck was born on February 22, 2000, in Dallas. Her mother works as a healthcare consultant. Her father, Bassey Etuck, an Army veteran, was not involved in raising her. In addition to her mother, Ms. Etuck is survived by three older brothers, Jeffrey, Jeremy, 
and Joseph Ayasere, and an older sister, Linda Ayasere. Miss Etuck sang in the church choir, was part of the color guard at Lake Ridge High School in Mansfield, Texas, from which she graduated in 2018 and liked to watch the history and discovery channels, but mostly she liked to read. She never asked for dolls, her mother said. She always asked for books. She was most fond of novels. She started devouring all of Harry Potter when she was eight years old. The Twilight series was also a favorite. When I would go to Walmart, she would say, can I buy books? Her mother said. That's when I knew she was smart. She paused before adding, she would have done so much. Okay, let's turn to the conversation for today. Really been looking forward to welcoming David Wallace-Wells. Let me introduce him to you. David Wallace-Wells is editor-at-large of New York Magazine and the author of the international best-selling book, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. The New York Times called both brilliant and the scariest book I've ever read. The Guardian called it an epoch-defining book, and the Washington Post called it This Generation's Silent Spring. He's a national fellow at the New America Foundation and writes frequently about the near future of science and technology. David Wallace-Wells, welcome to COVID Calls. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is there today. I'm in New York, um, where things seem relatively calm, but, you know, functionally, I think, have felt pretty calm since last summer, you know, even through some of the, the bad times we saw through the fall and winter, um, the shadow of that early spring wave was so cast, it's such cast such a long shadow that, you know, I think the city has basically returned to some state of semi-normalcy um, and has been living that way for, for almost a year now. So everybody's happy that, you know, the weather's getting better and we can spend more time outside and more people are starting to wear, um, not wear masks outside than before. But in most ways, um, it feels not all that much different than a few months ago when many fewer people were vaccinated. You must have had to evolve different ways of doing your work, David, during that time. Have you returned back to something that looked like what reporting was for you in, say, February of 2020, or have you moved on to a different way of working? I mean, all my calls are now, you know, Zoom. On some level, it's been better because it means that I can do interviews with video, which makes them much more intimate and direct. Um, whereas in the past, you know, I, I would do some in person, but the large majority was just phone calls and I felt a little disconnected. So, um, lots of in-person, real in-person reporting. Um, I am vaccinated and should be safe, but I was just talking about this with my wife a few hours ago. I still feel a lot of the scarring of the last year. I'm not and never was all that scared of the disease itself, being a relatively young person. But all of the social practices that we adopted, I think are going to take me at least a little longer to drop than maybe some other people. So we'll see when, when I feel comfortable. And in terms of vaccination there, where you are, the assumption is everyone has it on demand and it's not even a point of contention anymore? Or, or is there something different going on? Yeah, I mean, New York was fast, even by American standards, which was fast by global standards. Um, so we've, we're a few weeks into the, you can walk into a pharmacy and get a vaccine if you want. Um, they're giving out free baseball tickets at Mets and Yankees games if you if you get a vaccine on the way to the um, ballpark, or I think even at the ballpark there. So we're well past the needing to get vaccines to everybody who wants them. And we're now in the stage of trying to get people 
to the vaccines that we have. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been eager to talk with you on so many different topics, so let's jump in. I'd like to have, actually start. You testified before the Senate a few weeks ago, and um, in a special hearing uh, at the Budget Committee, the Senate Budget Committee, the hearing was titled "The Cost of Inaction on Climate Change." I'm just going to read your opening couple of sentences of testimony, and we can talk about it. You said. In the last calendar year, 2020, what was called at first the novel coronavirus killed, according to the CDC, 350,000 Americans. Air pollution from the burning of fossil fuels is not novel, but according to one recent estimate published in the journal Environmental Research, it also killed, in the last year, for which data are available, 350,000 Americans, a COVID-level mortality event in the midst of what appeared to most of us, overlooking the cost of burning fossil fuels, an unexceptional year. So, and it's a great, it's a great hearing and, and they gave you a lot of time to really develop some ideas in depth. I hope people will check that out. I was curious, why did you bring these two very arresting statistics into the same framework as you briefed the Senate? Well, I've been thinking more and more about air pollution in general. Um, I think that as I sort of moved through my, my work on climate um, I'm a relatively young person when it comes to climate change. I've been working on it for probably about four or five years now. It's not been a career-long um, focus. And so my perspective is changing as my, as my work deepens. And air pollution has seemed more and more to me, especially over the last year, to be a really much bigger part of this story than almost anyone appreciates. It's, you know, estimates are that globally 10 million people are dying every year from, um, from pollution. Um, maybe more than that, even since some recent estimates, um, just looking at the burning of fossil fuels, say that maybe 9 million people globally are, are dying from pollution from the burning of fossil fuels. And as I said in my testimony, um, you know, this is a Holocaust level event every single year. And of course, we're not responding to it with anything like that urgency um, or anything like that moral outrage. And there are a lot of reasons for that um, having to do with, you know, the the, the relative, the way that the villainy, you know, the responsibility is distributed, the way that to some degree it is um, something we live with in exchange for economic growth, although I think that's, you know, less true than most people would, would believe. Um, there are ways in which, you know, it, it um, has to, you know, it's tied up in, in matters of global justice in the sense in places like the US and Europe where we have relatively clean air, we just sort of think of air pollution is a problem of the developing world. And because those people are poorer and browner than us, we, we tend not to take their suffering all that seriously. Um, for all those reasons, you know, we were overlooking this incredibly um, dramatic, horrifying um, level of human suffering and death. And I wanted to sort of make a point of illustrating that by talking about how dramatically we responded to the arrival of this new threat um, last year, COVID-19, um, you know, not just in the U.S., but all around the Northern Hemisphere, really all around the world, essentially retreating into bunkers for a period of months, um, at least, um, in order to protect ourselves and one another. And that this was in response to a, you know, you cited this stats at the top of the show. There's actually a new report today suggesting that um, we may be undercounting the, the global mortality um, the death toll by about half. So, but nevertheless, we're still talking about a, a disease that's killed fewer people than air pollution kills every year. And we've taken unbelievably dramatic measures against it, in some cases succeeding, in some cases failing. But the, the disturbance, the, the, the tumult 
um, the disarray that this disease has caused is so much larger than what we have done in response to climate change, to be sure, but especially in, in response to what we've done um, with regard to air pollution. And I wanted to emphasize pollution to the Senate, in particular in this context of a hearing on the what they call the cost of inaction, because um, it illustrates, I think, very clearly the public health benefits of, of moving faster through decarbonization um, and their estimates that the, the economic impact, the positive economic impact of cleaner air um, would pay for the entire cost of decarbonization um, on its own. You don't have to even consider the benefits that come from preventing sea level rise or additional forest fire or anything else you want to think about as a climate impact. All you need to do to justify a fast decarbonization program is to look at the public health benefits of cleaner air. And I thought that that was a very clear illustration, especially in the context of the U.S. Senate, where there was a sort of rhetorical unanimity between the two parties, but there was also a sort of broad skepticism about any program of decarbonization that would be very expensive. And I think air pollution in particular sort of breaks that um, skepticism down because it shows, first of all, when you actually do cost benefit, it's a positive. Second of all, the benefits are concentrated, not just nationally, but locally, which means you don't have to worry about what, say, China's doing or what Japan's doing. You can just, um, you know, make the decision to, to move fast on decarbonization based on the benefits within your own borders. And because the benefits come relatively quickly, whereas cutting carbon out of, out of the atmosphere, we'll see those, those benefits starting in a few decades. Um, the benefits of cleaning up our air will come immediately. So for all those reasons, mm -hmm. I think it's a very useful rhetorical device in talking about the urgency of climate action. Um, and I think, you know, a, a, one way of waking us up from what I have always thought of as our problematic complacency about climate is to say, look how much we did to protect ourselves against this novel threat. Why don't we think about the threat that's already here and will will not ever go away in at least comparable terms that allow us to move with comparable speed and urgency and scale? I think it's a powerful way to frame it. And it, and it also speaks, I think, to issues you raise in, in the uninhabitable earth. Um, in, in you have a section in there about the elements of chaos and, and, you know, so the work there is, is moving past this idea of climate change. Is it, or isn't it? And actually saying it is. And so let's actually look at the evidence around us that you can already sense, um, and to try to then put those in some sort of context and develop that, that causality. And I appreciate, you know, that part of the book, because it really is a tour of the many different ways you could pick up any number of different things from wildfire to ocean acidification to air pollution. You also do write about pandemics. There's a section on pandemic in there. And so that must have been on your mind as this pandemic was unfolding, what those linkages might look like between climate change and COVID-19. It's not intuitively clear, at least it didn't seem to be to people in February, March or April of last year, what those connections might be. Where do you see the connections? Well, in general, in a future in which we are destabilizing the world's ecology and disrupting local ecosystems, sort of invading what had been previously sort of, quote unquote, untouched environments. Um, if we do that more, we're going to be coming into contact with more and more novel pathogens, which means there's a higher and higher risk that some of them will prove you know, catastrophic to human health and perhaps produce a pandemic. 
In the event, in the case of this particular pandemic, I don't think we can say with real certainty or clarity that any of those forces played a role. Um, you know, I, I think, honestly, I think there's some still, still some genuine questions about the origin of the disease. We still don't know exactly what, if it was a natural origin, what the intermediate host was. We don't know exactly how the disease moved and evolved from the predecessor disease. For all these reasons, we probably should be careful about not, you know, attributing too much cause to any one particular factor since we don't really know the story all that clearly. But in a world in which we were doing more of the things we've been doing for the last century, building up more, invading more natural habitats, we're going to be seeing more diseases and some of them are going to be, um, you know, sort of destabilizing. Climate change also um, sort of portends a worse disease future for other reasons, you know, because of the warming of the planet, it means that mosquitoes are going to be flying much farther afield than they used to, which means that all of the tropical diseases that they've carried and which we've always understood to be sort of contained in the tropics, you know, things like malaria and dengue are likely to show up in, in, you know, much farther north and much farther south than we've ever understood. And we'll have to take prophylactic measures against them in many more parts of the world. Um, you know, I write in the book also a little bit, um, you know, hyperbolically, there are also literally diseases frozen in ice that can become unfrozen and, and um, represent a human threat. I don't think that's a, a meaningful, that's going to be a meaningful part of our disease future. But it does just go to show you that when you destabilize something as fundamentally as we are destabilizing the planet's climate today, so many things happen that can't be predicted, and disease is often one of the um, one of the outcomes. And just to give your readers a, a sense, I mean, I think most people don't truly, your listeners a sense, most people don't truly understand just how different the world already is today, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And not just the one that our grandparents grew up in, but the one that every human who has ever lived has grown up in. So we're at, depending on how you count 1.2 or 1.3 degrees Celsius of warming above the pre-industrial average. And that doesn't sound like very much, but it literally means the planet is hotter than it has ever been in the entire history of human civilization. So everything that we've ever known as a species is a result of climate conditions that we've already left behind. And I often say it's like we've landed on a new planet with a new set of climate conditions. We have to figure out what of the civilization we've brought with us can survive these new conditions, what will have to be remodeled, what will have to be discarded. The last time there was as much carbon in the atmosphere as there is today, the planet wasn't just 1.2 or 1.3 degrees warmer, it was about three degrees warmer. There were thick forests in the Arctic and the seas weren't just a few centimeters higher, they were 25 meters higher than they are today. It was an entirely different world. Now, there are some reasons to think that we won't get there even with these co carbon concentrations. But again, it just illustrates just how different the world that we have already made is from the one that we have built all of our expectations for the future upon. And that means that so much that will be coming for us in the future will be a surprise. And disease is, I think, one of, one of the um, scariest of the surprises waiting in store for us. One of the concepts in the book that I find most useful is this idea of the climate cascade, which I think is what you were just referring to. And, and you actually have the this sort of great line in here, great, I mean, terrifying, great line that the experience of life in a climate transformed by human activity is not just a matter of stepping from one stable ecosystem into another, somewhat worse one. And so there seems to be this notion, I think this is applicable also to how we talk about the pandemic, this idea that we can either do some interventions and go back. Can we just get back, please? Or let's do some interventions, unleash science, technology, spending, and we'll get to a new normal. But the assumption built into both of those 
and I hear both of those sort of discourses around, is we will reach stability again. And I think it's useful thinking about this cascade idea, because the idea that these systems will be stable, and maybe even metaphorically thinking about that in terms of the pandemic, I wonder what you think about this, that you know, the overwhelming of a health system is not something that you just take lightly. When you overwhelm a health system in any individual country or when you tax a health system globally, um, that has uncertain outcomes. We don't exactly know what that looks like. So that cascade idea, I think, is an important correction to what people have built. Maybe it's psychological or just inheritance that we're used to ideas of going through tumult and then reaching stability again. I think from your work, we have to, it tells me we need to really rethink that idea. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, absolutely, no matter what happens, the climate is going to be changing considerably more from what it is right now, which means any set of expectations we are forming even today, when things are very much out of whack by any historical standard, are themselves going to be bad. Those are going to be bad guides to a future of 1.5 degrees or two degrees or, you know, God help us, north of two degrees. Um, but it's not even one consistent pattern. So, you know, for instance, sea level rise, which is among the more dramatic impacts from climate change, that unfolds over centuries or even millennia. So if we're talking about seas, you know, conceivably, if we trigger the total loss of all ice sheets, which scientists disagree about exactly when that might happen, but some people think it could happen as soon as just a little warmer than two degrees, that might take thousands of years to play out. Wildfires are already getting dramatically worse today. Um, in fact, you know, I wrote a story in Calif about California wildfires um, in 2019. I spent some time talking to Eric Garcetti, the mayor of LA. The year he was born, 60,000 acres burned in the state. The year he was elected mayor, he's like, I think he turned 50 last year. The year he was elected mayor, it was 600,000. So it was a tenfold increase over whatever that was, 42 years, tenfold. The year he was reelected mayor, four years later, it was 1.2 million. So it was a, a doubling in just four years. And then the year before, I, you know, I was the, the year immediately prior to when I was reporting, it was 1.9 million. So it had been a 50% increase in a single year. Now last year, it was over 4 million. So we've got uh, more than a doubling in a single year. This is the rate of change that's happening across California. Those changes are immediate. They are unbelievably dramatic. And then you think about something like air pollution, where probably air pollution, which may, as I was saying earlier, may even be the biggest component of the human cost of climate change going forward. We may already be in the worst of it because we are already on a path of decarbonization you know, electric vehicles, green energy that will allow us to clean up the world's air. We don't know how fast it'll happen, but it's a pretty good bet that the air is going to be getting cleaner steadily over the next few decades. And that means for that climate impact, we may already be in the worst of it and getting better. And so you have all of these different timelines unfolding at once, which even beyond the fact that there's no new normal, it's a complete, it's a very destabilizing experience to be in because if you're basing your expectation for all climate impacts, on say an understanding of um, flooding, um, that's very different than if you're basing it on an impact, you know, on an understanding of wildfire or basing it on an uh, understanding of air pollution. And so we have to constantly be recalibrating our sets of expectations. You know, my own sense about normalization, which is, um, you know, um, you're talking about how we have no, we have no, we have no hope of going back to normal. But we so want to do that. 
that in fact we keep imposing a sense of normality on things that were no were relatively recently completely unthinkable. Um, so when I was in California reporting on those fires, I spoke to a lot of Californians, and I said to them, you know, I'm a New Yorker. I don't understand how can you live here under the threat of these fires. I spoke to a woman who has lived in Malibu so long she had lived through nine fires, and they said to me almost to a one. We've always had fires in California. And I said, no, 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 they're, they're getting a lot worse. They're probably going to get six times worse by the middle of the century, maybe even worse than that. The air pollution is really bad from them, you know, affects every part of human health, et cetera. How can you possibly continue to live in this environment? And, you know, they said, some of them just said, no, we've always had fires and like kind of refused to acknowledge that things had gotten so much worse. But some of them turned to me and said, but you're from New York and you guys had Hurricane Sandy. And I had to acknowledge that they were right. And that I also had completely normalized what had once been seen as this totally unlivable flooding event in New York City. Um, and I think about that dynamic a lot. I think about it in two different ways. The first is um, it's a real shame that, well, the first is we may find a way to live normally in a world that looks to us today completely horrifying. And the second is that's a moral tragedy and a moral failure because we are then accepting a level of human suffering from climate change that we know today would be wrong, but a decade or two from now, we might just accept as the wallpaper of our lives. And if we have a hope of responding, especially to the way that climate will impact the global South in a way that we would be proud of on a moral basis, we really have to retain the standards that we have today, or even ideally the standards we might've had a few decades ago in thinking about how to respond to say heat impacts in, in South Asia or, you know, um, agricultural impacts in sub-Saharan Africa, which, which promised to be quite crippling and maybe even unovercomable um, without some really significant support from the richer parts of the world. Thanks for sharing that sort of moment of uh, insight from your reporting. And I think that's really interesting. And, and I've had, I think disaster researchers have probably had similar experiences can really relate to what you, yeah, we know fire or we know earthquake. I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. We know severe storms. We know hail storms, whatever it may be. And of course, every region has um, these hazards that are part of the context of the history. But as you point out, and, and I think there's pretty good research to show, humans are not good at understanding exponential growth. We're not good at understanding big numbers. And so we make sense of the evidence that's in front of us. And if it doesn't compute, we tell a story that somehow tries to, to make sense right. of it. And the pandemic is a is a horrifying illustration of that. I mean, it, yeah. you know, the, the in some ways the greatest response that we mounted almost anywhere was when the numbers were quite small. Um, you know, in the U.S., you know, it was major, major front page news when we hit a hundred thousand deaths. Nobody noted it in the same way when we hit two hundred thousand, three hundred. You know, um, but I'm curious, you know, how you see these questions playing out in South Korea, where so much. Um, they, where they've done so much of a better job because the question of whether we will normalize and whether we can go back or whether we've been thrown too much into disarray by these um, by this experience, that question will probably be answered very differently in a country like South Korea than in a country like the U.S. because the experiences of the pandemic were, were so different and, and even so different in timeline. I mean, you must feel largely like you've been largely on the other side of this for about a year now. I well, I arrived here only early this year. Oh, yeah. So, so when we left, um, 
New Jersey. We left New York, New Jersey in February. I mean, it felt like that was really the first time that my family had kind of been out much. We'd stayed in a hotel, went to the airport first time and with before vaccine for us, before vaccination. So we kind of felt like it was like escape from New York. I mean, we're like, you know, there was this sense of like danger. And then we came to South Korea and we went through, I think, six different checkpoints before we even got out of the airport in terms of installing apps on the phone. We were in intersecting with the infection control regime that they've had in place here now for well over a year. You couldn't imagine two more different experiences. At the same time, um, access to vaccine here is is not widespread. So I mean, it's a very strange situation. It's what uh, the writer Malka Older has called jab lag. That I'm now talking with family and friends, talking with you back in New York, and vaccination is so ubiquitous that it's not even an issue, con really, conversation anymore. And here it's not available, but the number of cases on a daily basis is very low. What that means in the broader sense of like the political economy of South Korea, it's interesting. I'm learning a lot right now, but there's a lot of pride in the success of the infection control regime. And it has roots that go before, as you could expect, that are connected also to your work. Um, you know, impacts of seasonal dust and pollution and air quality. That's the precondition for adoption of masks, not some sort of general idea that Asians have a collective sense of sort of confusion. So these are very sort of racist ideas that got out there. It's more, it's really rooted in coping mechanisms they've already developed here um, in the last decade to deal with things that you might call climate change or decreasing air quality. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's also interesting in the US, we're now talking so much about, you talk about the jab lag, we're talking so much about our responsibility, especially towards the nations of the global south, and maybe most especially um, to India, um, to export our the, the vaccines that we've been hoarding, or to release the you know the IP so that they can be manufactured more freely elsewhere around the world. And there is that that gap between, um, especially the U.S., but more broadly the sort of the first world nations vaccination rates mm -hmm. and, the, and the global south. On the other hand, there's also a gap between some of the countries that have done worst with the, with the disease, the US, the UK, to a lesser extent, Israel, and some of even the quite advanced countries like South Korea, Japan, that did relatively well. And have, as a result, Australia, you know, are, are moving much more slowly on vaccines. And so in this strange way, you know, the US has really obviously really, really stumbled, as did most of the countries of Europe in trying to get a grip on the disease. But vaccination means that we may, at least for a period of time, sort of come out ahead and feel actually a little a little more safe than we might if we were walking around the streets of, you know, for instance, um, Tokyo. New York may, may feel safer this month than Tokyo does, um, even though New York right. did so much of a worse job managing the disease at first. Right. I just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking to David Wallace Wells today, the author of The Uninhabitable Earth. We're talking about climate change and the pandemic. 
I know you were tracking the, so one of the ideas that's been out there in circulation for a long time is that there must be a technological fix to climate change. Things could get bad. And we heard the same rhetoric with the pandemic. And I think the Trump administration adopting the Operation Warp Speed um, idea, it doesn't matter what we do with infection control, it'll be American technology that'll get us through this to the other side. Um, I, I sound cynical without even really trying to, even the way I frame that. But the managerial response, the idea that we can manage our ways out of this crisis um, is something I know you track pretty closely. I wonder what you think about things we can take from the pandemic response that might shed some light on the future of climate response. Well, I would actually separate out the vaccine dream. For me, the vaccine dream is the dream of not having to do anything at all, not having to change anything at all. It's not really a managerial dream. It's a dream of a silver bullet deus ex machina, because not just in the US, but all across Western Europe, most countries proved themselves unwilling to take the measures that were necessary, or they didn't have the leadership to implement the right policies that were necessary at the outset of the pandemic that would have actually helped them control it. When you look across the responses throughout East Asia in particular, and Oceania as well, um, you see a, a really, really sharp contrast, which is to say that those countries that responded soonest, fastest, most aggressively, and in a certain sense, took most seriously the fear of the disease were those who most quickly suppressed and even in many cases eradicated it. In those countries, you know, the US, the UK, France, Italy, Spain, Germany, that felt themselves capable of catching up to the disease, they were devastated by that miscalculation and by that hubris. The countries, you know, these were countries who, for the most part, see themselves, you know, I wrote a piece about this called How the West Lost COVID. The West is a kind of an uncomfortable term to use. You know, it's, it's not an ideal one, but it is sort of the best shorthand for grouping like all the countries of Europe and, and, and North America together. Um, all, these were all countries who understood themselves to be too wealthy for pandemics, too medically advanced for pandemics. And so we didn't really trust that there was a real risk there until it was right on our doorstep. And I don't just mean that the doorstep of the West, because when it showed up in Italy, people in Spain didn't prepare. And when it showed up in Spain, people in France didn't prepare. And when it showed up in France, people in the UK didn't prepare. And even in the US, for the most part, it took outbreaks in individual locations or states for local communities to really take seriously that threat. They can never say, oh, wow, what happened in New York is horrifying. We have to do everything we can to protect ourselves. They looked at what was happening in New York and thought, oh, there's like liberal governors. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're in a different place. We're going to be fine. Um, this hubris that we saw all through all of these countries was absolutely catastrophic. And you see it very, very clearly when it comes to contemplating um, the threat of climate change, where many, many people in many of these countries will acknowledge that the planet is warming. Maybe a few years ago, they would have denied it, but extreme weather has made that basically impossible. They will acknowledge that the planet is warming. They'll acknowledge that extreme weather is getting more common. And yet they just think, how could this possibly affect or damage my own life? I live in this, you know, prosperous country surrounded by technology and, uh, and concrete. You know, I don't live 
on a melting ice flow. Um, but this exact hubris is what cost us all with COVID. And I think is the big threat when it comes to climate change, because technology, if we will solve the problem of climate change, it will be solved through technology. Um, mm. But technology is not sufficient. We also need political will to implement that technology at scale, at speed, and the willingness, at least, if not excitement, to reorganize our societies to some degree um, to allow us to be safer and more resilient in the face of impacts that we know are coming. And the story there, the record there, um, as illustrated by the pandemic, is a real mixed one. To some degree, we took extreme measures. As I mentioned earlier, you know, in the spring, there were billions of kids out of school across the Northern Hemisphere. Sure. Um, yeah. And yet, we did it so crudely and so poorly across Europe and the US that we really didn't manage to meaningfully respond at all. That really worries me. Um, and as with COVID, the lesson of climate is if you wait until the impacts are at your doorstep, first of all, they're likely to be absolutely horrifying already. And second of all, they're going to get worse from there. So I would like to look at the experience and the response of countries throughout East Asia and Oceania as a, as a good model. And in fact, my understanding is that a lot of that public health response actually was sort of designed by American public health officials, although Americans didn't implement them, um, but then adapted and, and you know, refined in, in the experience of, of SARS and MERS. I would like to take inspiration from that and say at least these countries um, responded quickly, um, you know, before the cat got out of the bag, before the toothpaste got out of the tube, and were able to really control the situation as a whole. Unfortunately, climate change is a global problem. It's produced by global emissions. And you can't succeed if only a couple of countries get it right. You got to get everybody on board and you have to have everybody moving in the same direction. And I worry about that requirement of global cooperation too, where the response to COVID is, you know, it was patchwork. It was rivalrous. Um, especially we see that now with a, with a vaccine rollout. And I, I think that's another um, sort of grim portent for the way that we'll, we'll likely be um, operating when it comes to um, responding to dramatic climate impacts. What you describe as a, a hubris, can we go a little bit further with that? I mean, do you do you root that again in this sort of American fascination, faith um, in technology as the deus ex machina? Or is it something about the nature of democracy in the United States, just the way democracy works in the U.S., that it just has this long deliberation aspect and there's so many inputs, there's so many governors, there's so many mayors, there's so many different people who can slow down the project if they if they want to, that we look at it. That I just wonder how you, where you root that, that hubris, because I agree with you 100%. Well, and the president can take extraordinary action in the midst of a crisis, but if he chooses not to in our system um, or chooses to take opposite of good action, it, the whole thing can fall apart, which some people have said to me, well, that's what democracy looks like. My own read of this is that um, America is much less exceptional than Americans have tended to believe through this pandemic, that our experience, we had this catastrophic leader who, you know, was callous and downplayed the threat of the disease and took basically no action outside of the, you know, vaccine um, project um, to address it. You literally could not have imagined a worse leadership structure in the U.S. At the CDC, at the FDA, they made major mistakes early on. Um, and you would think 
the, the, the pandemic outcome, therefore, was really exceptional. And you could then say, well, America really bungled this because we had Trump and because we really messed up the, the decision making tree at these major, um, you know, these, these, these major institutions. But when you look to the countries that we think of as our peers, you know, we're, we're much more like them than we are unlike them. And, you know, there are differences, you know, the, the per capita death rate in Germany is about half of what it is in the U.S. It's like, I think about 900 or a thousand and we're at about 1800 um, per million. And those are, that's a meaningful gap. Obviously it, it means many more people, many more Americans died than would have died if we had the same death rate as Germany. But when you compare it to the experience of, you know, I think South Korea is like five per million. So we're talking about 900 for Germany, 1800 or thousand for Germany, 1800 for the U S five for South Korea, 50 for Japan, um, 0.5 per million for Taiwan. I mean, these are just minuscule numbers by comparison. And when you pull back and see that global picture, I think it's very clear that you've had really very different stories. And, you know, there's sort of three big experiences. The experience of India recently is complicating this a little bit, but you have the experience of East Asia and Oceania, which basically suppressed the disease very successfully. You have the experience of most of the global South where there has been spread of the disease, but mostly not much dying in part because of good public health measures and in part because the age structure of the population is so different. And then across, you know, Europe and the Americas, you've just had this absolutely crippling, devastating pandemic, much worse than anywhere else in the world. And I try to begin my own analysis from that sense of commonality rather than thinking of what happened in the U.S. as exceptional. And what that teaches me or what that suggests to me is that political leadership may matter a lot less here than we think um, in the sense that, you know, what, especially, um, well, let me take that back. Like deciding to move quickly, immediately and mobilizing all the state's resources quickly is the most important thing that you could possibly do. Speed is the most important thing, almost independent of what the policy is moving and moving fast is a measure of leadership. But once the disease has already arrived locally and is circulating in community transmission, the measures that can be taken by leaders are relatively limited and don't have all that determinative an impact on the spread of the disease. You know, when you look across the U.S., we had this huge culture war fight all year. Blue states fighting with red states, you know, publications saying, you know, this governor who's lifting restrictions is essentially, um, you know, killing his citizens, um, you know, people in blue states terrified about the lifting of restrictions. Um, and then you look at the actual data about social mobility and it's sort of the same from state to state. Um, mm -hmm. People were wearing masks, even in the reddest states for the most part, through the worst parts of the disease at quite high levels. Um, you know, the level of socializing was about the same. And as a result, a lot of the death rates were about the same. You know, in, in this piece I wrote, um, I point out, you know, it's, it's not a perfect comparison. There are a lot of complicating factors, but, you know, California had perhaps the most repressive longstanding lockdown policies in the whole country. Florida had the least. And at least at the time I wrote the article, they, they ranked in terms of death rate in the country, 27th and 29th. Now, maybe California would have been much, much worse if they had had an open policy. Probably they would have at least been somewhat worse. Maybe Florida would have done much, much better if they had had a much more restrictive set of policies. Probably they would have been a little bit better. But I think in our eagerness to give responsibility to political leaders, 
we've mm. sort of overlooked a lot of the dynamics below political um, policy that have really shaped this disease from, you know, climate, geography, uh, residential density, um, you know, willingness to wear masks, um, you know, there are a whole host of other factors. And, you know, again, as I said earlier, above all, speed is critical. And so political leadership there is really valuable. But I also, you know, and so ultimately the big question for me about not just the West, but maybe the US particularly is why we move so slowly, why we waited so long to move. And I think ultimately the answer to that is about our wealth. I think we really did believe that we were too rich to suffer in this way. I think we really did believe that our healthcare was technologically advanced and our bureaucracy was well-resourced enough that we could, as I said earlier, play catch up. We didn't have mm -hmm. to beat the disease out of the gate. We could let it get here and then fight it back. And that was just deeply foolish. And one of the scientists I spoke to for my piece said to me, you know, along, alongside these sort of um, factors of wealth, also, you know, the sort of political culture that you talked about where there's a, a sort of libertarian streak here that isn't necessarily as prominent elsewhere right. in the world. Right. Um, there was also just the fact that these are countries that in part because they are so rich have not suffered gravely at the level of the population in historical memory. And so there wasn't that muscle memory of like snapping into, you know, a World War II scale mobile. When the US wants to talk about what, taking dramatic action, we always talk about World War II. That was 70 years ago. Right. Um, and we haven't done anything since that required anything like that response. Um, and I think that means, you know, or has, has, has meant that we are less, you know, our, our muscles here are a little bit, our quick switch muscles are a little bit less developed than some other countries that are a little more, um, you know, ha have a little more recent memory of responding quickly. And, you know, throughout Asia, the, the conventional, everybody points to it. The experience of SARS and MERS was really, really significant. Mm -hmm. It shaped policy, but it also trained citizens to respond um, dramatically and be comfortable with a dramatic response. Without that, you know, it's hard to know exactly, um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to imagine um, the, a country like the U.S. taking the kinds of um, measures that, for instance, South Korea did or China. And I don't think that has to do with how repressive or authoritarian China is or how Confucian the culture is. I think it's just our recent experience and our mm -hmm. vulnerability is really different. And we've told ourselves for generations that we were invulnerable. The pandemic is, is in part, I think, a story of that, um, that delusion coming home to roost. In that sense, then, you know, Trump, uh, DeSantis, any governor you want to choose, they're, they're bearers of that culture rather than creators of that culture. And I think it's something really interesting I want to stick with there that you pointed out um, as you talked about, um, you know, we focused on the differences. Just Let's take the United States, for example, the differences among different states. Um, which were important at various moments of the pandemic, particularly in that earliest moment when it moves into the population, or is your health system prepared or not? I think that's really a defining defining feature. But um, you pointed out some of the, the collective actions. The lockdowns were pretty well uniform. They ended at variable times in different places. But my family in Texas was in lockdown. The collective action was real there. The grocery stores were closed. Masking was pretty universal. 
And so it's interesting to think with that fact, climate change, that we've been told for so long that any kinds of collective actions or individual actions are impossible, either one. The people in an individual, they'll think that the problem is too great, so they'll never do anything. Collectively, it's too complicated, so we can't do it collectively. So what do we do? We just sit around and, and wait for the apocalypse. But it seems to me, in what you were just saying, that even in the pandemic, you find pieces of information that maybe push back on both of those, those notions. The people have acted both collectively and individually in ways that don't necessarily line up with who's gotten all the headlines, which is what did Trump do today? Yeah, I mean, I think on some level, the biggest and most dramatic development of this experience was just seeing response at this scale. Putting aside whether it worked, mm-hmm. the entire world upended their lives for a period of months to protect one another. Now, you know, different countries succeeded where others failed, but there was an incre- actually an incredible willingness to change the way that we live, to change our, our, our you know, romantic lives, our family lives, our educational lives, our economic lives across a huge number of different societies with different political cultures, um, different histories. Um, there was an incredible willingness to make change out of fear. The question is whether we did that intelligently. <laughs> um, but ultimately, on some level, when it comes to you know the question of lessons for climate, I find that encouraging because if all that we're talking about is how to channel collective concern and will intelligently, that is to me a much easier challenge to solve than trying to find that will to begin with. And frankly, two years ago, if you would ask me, putting even aside climate change, if you would ask me, like, you know, would a disease with this lethality rate that is, you know, the um, the death toll is concentrated in the very old, most people of middle age, and especially the very young are pretty safe. Like, would that be sufficient to completely upend the way of daily life for billions of people around the world, I would have said absolutely not. I would have thought that was preposterous. And yet we've proven ourselves capable of, of some really amazing response. We, we did it dumbly in many parts of the world. We didn't respond quickly enough. Thankfully, the timeline on climate change is not as compressed or as dramatic. You know, missing out on two or three days is not gonna like make climate change twice or three times as bad as is the case with an exponentially growing disease. Um, But, you know, so whatever, you know, in that sense, I, I find myself generally speaking, um, generally speaking, encouraged. And, you know, I also think that just as an aside over the course of the past year, there has been an enormous amount of movement on climate and progress in ways I think we may not even notice because it was it was happening during a pandemic. I was going to ask you about that because you wrote a really nice um, piece about that, which appeared, I think, in January titled After Alarmism. And just in there, you you point out, you said that uh, policy progress over the last year has almost been smuggled into place all over the world under cover of pandemic night. This is a really interesting um, thing, too. It also speaks to sort of some of the problems that people have sort of imagining um, 
two dom two that's sort of like one dominant disaster paradigm in any given time. It's a little hard to work with too. But tell us a little bit about that piece, like what did happen last year while we were paying attention to the pandemic. Well, so there are some stories that are a little long longer than just last year. One of them is that the price of renewables has just been falling dramatically, as has the price of battery technology, which means that the logic of decarbonization is the cost benefit analysis there is so strong. Whereas a few years ago, it was understood by most people to be um, economically burdensome to take action. Now, almost every policymaker, almost every economist in the world will tell you, you'll be better off if you move faster and and make investments faster. That's really been important um, in shaping the landscape of possibility, as has this global protest movement that started a few years ago with Greta and Extinction Rebellion, but is much bigger than any two people or two groups. Um, You're starting to see a whole new cultural awakening in the leadership, global political leadership class, also in the, in the business class. And so as a result, you know, literally over the course of the pandemic, we had ambitious new net zero carbon pledges made by many constituent members of the EU, but the, also the EU as a whole. Just uh, yesterday or today, Germany announced a new pledge. The UK has made a very ambitious one. Uh, we've also seen really ambitious pledges from Japan, from South Korea, and most notably from China, um, which is now promising to get to sort of um, peak its carbon in the next decade or so, and then get all the way to zero by 2060. Now, these pledges are not nearly as ambitious as I would like, and they don't allow us to get close to the global goal of staying below two degrees. Um, even if they were all implemented, we get, according to sort of the best estimate, about 2.4 degrees, which is still unacceptably high. And yet its ambition well beyond anything that has ever been um, put forward before on in the generations of climate activism. And that means that, you know, we had to previously just a year or two ago, talk about our median outcome for climate at something like four degrees, where we're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of climate refugees. We're talking about parts of the planet hit by six climate driven natural disasters at once, twice as much war as we have today, agricultural yields falling by as much as half, you know, really, really unbelievable disorienting catastrophic climate impacts. And now we're talking about a median projection of two and a half degrees, which is considerably better. And we've made that progress in just a few years time, a lot of it having to do with the promises that were made during this pandemic. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of people to credit for this um, transformation. I think that, you know, the political pressure of activist groups has been critical. I think growing public awareness of climate impacts from extreme weather is really important, has been really important too. You can no longer believe that this is not a problem. Um, But I also think that the sort of the economic opportunities offered by changing cost benefit analysis and um, separately by the new economic paradigm that, that has been embraced by so many central banks and central government figures over the last year has really opened things up. Whereas, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, if you said you got to spend a couple trillion dollars a year in the US dollars to decarbonize, that would have seemed like an impossibly high price tag. But we've just come through this year where we spent whatever the total figure was, five, six trillion dollars on pandemic relief. And, you know, we're going to be dealing with the balance sheet impacts of that going forward. But we've really expanded our sense of what is possible in terms of government action. And I think now, we're thinking, okay, so where do we put the, to what use do we put those tools? If we're going to be spending so much more money than we have before, why not put it towards the biggest problem that we face as a planet, which is climate change, 
Why don't we make investments that will enrich us, but will also protect us from the thing that is most analogous to the um, to the terror that we felt this year? It's interesting to me, you know, you, you talked earlier about the World War II and it's where it sticks in American and I think in European memory as as well. And, and if you just reel it back a little bit and think about the Great Depression um, in that period of time, you know, the moves that the government made, that the Roosevelt administration made, of course, they didn't end the Great Depression, but there was a sort of a policy momentum and a, and a buildup of expertise in various sectors in government that hadn't been there before that carried through the war and carried after World War II. And what you're describing almost makes me reach back to that historical moment in the United States to see the sort of period of momentum in which people, I mean, to make it very simple, like the government can do things. Um, but, but more importantly, the way Joe Biden, for example, talks about climate change, he talks about it in terms of economic growth. He doesn't talk about it, as you said, in terms of, you know, well, we all have to take our medicine with this and we're all going to live more poorly. He doesn't talk about it that way at all. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's Xi Jinping. It's, you know, all of the leaders of the EU, every political leader who's plotting a a medium term plan for their country sees the, um, the medium term benefits of moving faster rather than moving slower. And that's the most, actually the most significant thing of this whole raft of new net zero commitments is that. They were not made in the context of an international conference. They were not made by peer pressure on another or laying on one another and the of, um, of climate action. Well, they were, they were countries who made these choices individually, independently, in some cases in right. secret, because they were making cold-eyed calculations about what was in the best interest of their citizens. And they saw, even on relatively short timelines, even within their national borders, faster action was better. That's the most, on some level, the the biggest conceptual breakthrough of all of this. We're almost up on time in COVID calls with David Wallace-Wells. I want to sort of ask you the researchers question here for disaster researchers who are listening to this this call. Uh, I I love your work. I I love reading about the way you, you make sense of disaster. I like the way you write about time. You read very widely. Obviously, you do a lot of interviews very broadly across different different research areas. In social science, particularly in humanities, where do you, what are you reading? What are you thinking about? What are some of the open questions that you see in the way that social scientists think about climate or pandemic or disaster more generally that you're following or that you'd like to see more, more research in? Well, I think ultimately the biggest question is how climate impacts and climate action will map onto global inequality. Um, you know, I think it is the case that in a city like New York, where I live, we can build a seawall to protect this whole city and all that expensive real estate. And we will do it because that real estate is so expensive, it makes sense to protect. But there are huge parts of the world um, and huge populations of people for whom that dollars and cents calculus isn't exactly the same. And governments who don't have the resources to make those investments, even if they did feel that they were um, you know, worth making. And that is ultimately the big challenge here. You know, um, as has been said by many other people long before I started even thinking seriously about climate, you know, this is a, a, a horror story that affects us disproportionately, even though it also affects us universally. Those who are most responsible for the problem, namely the US, but also to a lesser extent, the countries of Europe, and now increasingly China, are those who are going to be hit least hard. 
And those countries who have done the most, uh, done the least to bring about this new challenge, this new crisis, are those who are going to be hit the hardest. How we think about responsibility there is hugely, hugely important. And to this point, um, the wealthy nations of the world have utterly failed to address the needs of the developing world when it comes to climate. Um, we've taken very, very limited philanthropic measures. We've done very little licensing of IP, which has been talked about a lot with regard to vaccines. There's not really been that discussion at any large scale with climate tech. Now, I'm not saying if we're there, we should be doing that. There's an important place for innovation too, um, and incentive, incentivizing that innovation. But the whole question of, you know, the industrial revolution was invented in England. The, the empire built on that power ruled over India for two mm -hmm. centuries. Right. India is now the country scheduled to be hit hardest in the entire world from climate impacts. What's the responsibility of Brits to Indians when it comes to climate change? If tens of millions of Indians have to move, or if cities like Calcutta have to be entirely rebuilt to make them habitable in higher temperatures, who's gonna foot that bill? Who's gonna make sure that India is decarbonizing you know, who's going to help them decarbonize to keep us in line with our climate goals? And the U.S. is the, is the you know, has produced the most carbon emissions of any country in, in history, um, c considerably more than, um, than China, who's the current leader. And since carbon hangs in the air for centuries, you really do have to take this longer um, sense of assessment of responsibility. You know, we essentially built Saudi Arabia as an oil pipeline client state of ours. Um, that was not a oil state before the U.S. got involved. Um, that is now a country that will be so hot, it is going to be almost impossible to go on a pilgrimage to Mecca within a few decades because of the perturbations of the climate that have been produced by an American-led fossil fuel economy that was powered by oil that we extracted effectively from Saudi Arabia. What is our responsibility to those Saudis? In fact, what is our responsibility to the billion Muslims in the world who might want to go um, on a pilgrimage to Mecca? How do we think about that? How do we pay for it? How do we, you know, all of these questions are incredibly thorny at a hard-nosed geopolitical level, at a basic uh, level of moral humanitarianism, at an ethical level, um, practically speaking, technically, how do we design the financial instruments we need if we to help them? How do we design the, the technology we need to help? Um, how do we think about the, the role of borders in a world that has been destabilized by these climate impacts? Um, I think all of these questions are hugely important. The stakes are enormous, and we have really not yet begun to sort of, you know, develop a moral or legal or intellectual or political regime that will allow us to sort of adjudicate these disputes and accommodate the needs of those made most desperate by climate. And I think um, ultimately that's a, that's a sort of a critical next stage in making the world that will be warmer, that will be harder, making that world nevertheless still not just habitable, but also ideally just. You've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Please join me back on Monday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time for COVID Calls. And I just want to thank my guest, David Wallace-Wells, the author of The Uninhabitable Earth for this conversation about climate and the pandemic. 
David, thanks for all the work you're doing, and I uh, wish you luck in the reporting you're doing right now. Thanks for being with us here today. Great to talk. Thanks for having me. Stay healthy, everyone. We will see you on Monday, 5.30 p.m. Thank you.